cops too, like Ryan. Good morning. Good morning, Northridge. Whether you are joining us online or you're here in the room, we are so grateful and honored that you would choose to spend some of your Sunday with us. If we haven't met, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge. And because I am usually running around back there, back there, on a Sunday morning, I thought I'd introduce myself briefly to you this morning before we dive into today's message. So again, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm born and raised in Minneapolis. Shout out to the one other Vikings fan (laughs) in the room. There are actually two here at Northridge. Trust me, there are three of us total. So we're three or more gathered. There the Lord is also. Like I said, I'm a pastor here on staff. I've been in pastoral ministry and full-time ministry for about eight years, and I know what you're thinking. I look young, but that is a second career for me. I spent about 11 years in real estate and finance before being called to pastoral ministry. Uh, Married to Leah, there's a picture of us going to come up on the screen. We've been married for about five years. We celebrated that last October, and we are parents to three lovely young ladies, So Clara is our daughter. She just turned four in December. And on the left there is Delena, who is 15. She's a stepdaughter of mine. She turned 15 yesterday. And on Clara's right is Amory, who will be 17 next month. So it's a blessing to have those girls in my life. And this part about my life being a second career in pastoral ministry in this beautiful family is important to today's message. But we will come back to that in a little bit. So today we're going to continue our God is Sermon series, where we're going to learn over these five weeks five characteristics or traits that we learn about God from the Bible. Last week, Rini shared how God is personal to her through various experiences that she has had in her life. And she shared that a well-worn Bible is a life, indicates a life that has God's word etched on its heart. She also shared an overview of how the Bible came to be and various genres within the Bible. So if you did not catch last week's message, I would encourage you to go back and watch that. It's a beautiful story of God's redemption, which we are going to step into further today. Today, I'm going to give you an overview of this story, the story of the Bible. This actually tells us a story from cover to cover, and this story is an amazing story. So one of my goals for today is that you learn a little bit more about the story that is the Bible and you catch some of my excitement. I love this book. It has changed my life absolutely and there's so much in it for each of us. And this story tells us of God's love for us. It tells us of God's love for us from the front cover to the back cover and he shows us that through his redemption time and time again the redemption of his people, the redemption of people, and ultimately the redemption of the entirety of creation. So I'd like to tell you this morning how God is Redeemer by telling you the story of a space shuttle, a shining city, a sandal, and a savior. All right, let's dive in. On September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy gave one of his most famous speeches of his presidency. He did that at Rice University in Houston, Texas. In that speech, 
President Kennedy said the following famous words. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve us to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept. One we are unwilling to postpone. And one which we intend to win. And the others too. So of course we know from history that in fact we would go to the moon. That Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong would take the Apollo 11 and land on the moon's surface on July 20th, 1969. But to understand why these words that President Kennedy offered to us are such a big deal, we have to consider the state of space travel and the state of the country when he gave that address to the nation. You see, in that year, 1962, we were in the middle of what was known as the space race with the former Soviet Union. And not only that, just seven months earlier was the first time that an American astronaut ever orbited the Earth. Not went anywhere near the moon, but just orbited the earth. So as you can imagine, this was a bold proclamation that President Kennedy made. This was a grand vision that he gave for the nation that was far beyond the horizon of whatever understanding we had about what was possible. And we have a vision, a vision that is bold and beyond the future in the Bible as well that God has given us. You see, the last book of the Bible is called the book of Revelation. On the chart that shows the genres of the Bible, it's going to be on your screens, you'll see that Revelation is the bottom of the middle category, and it's a book of prophetic literature. So all you need to know this morning about prophetic literature is that it's something that God gives to a person to give to people. It's often filled with a lot of symbolism and imagery, and in most cases it it contains some sort of future, future scene or w- the way things will be, whether or not God's people repent or don't repent, depending on that. And so the book of Revelation was given to the Apostle John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is a small Greek island. It was written in the, the center of the book to the seven churches in what were called Asia Minor. Now, that's modern-day Turkey. And at the end of Revelation, if you know the prophetic literature at the end of the Bible, you'll know there's a description of the end times, the final judgment, and ultimately the final state that we, that humanity and creation, will live in for eternity. The last two chapters, chapters 21 and 22, give us the picture, the grand, grand vision of how eternity will look for the entirety of creation. It says in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 21, Then I, that's John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and is true. Continuing in verse 10. So then he, that's Jesus, took John 
in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. This is the shining city that we will spend eternity in. In a new heaven, in a new earth, no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying or pain. All of this gone forever. Everything in creation made new. This is like President Kennedy giving this grand and bold vision that is just beyond the horizon. God gives us the same vision for our eternity, for his people that we can read today. And I know what you're thinking in this moment. Maybe you're thinking this, but we already went to the moon. Like that happened in the 1960s. And so what does this have to do with anything that John is writing in the book of Revelation? You see, John's vision for us, for God's creation, will come true and is coming true because this story, the story of the Bible, gives us proof. You see, this story has God's redemption of his people, of people and of creation time and time again. We know this to be true because it's already happened. And maybe you're like me, and redemption and God saving you from something has happened in your life as well. You see, God has redeemed, God will redeem, and God is redeeming. This is the story of the Bible. So that's the end, right? So let's go back to the beginning. The first, about two-thirds of the Bible is known as the Old Testament. We can also consider the Old Testament to be something like an old covenant or an old contract. Now, the first part of the Bible is the story of creation, includes wisdom literature, and has the story of God's people all before the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament was, Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, except for a few small parts of the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra, which were written in Aramaic. And so now, in our modern day, we read the Bible in English, or whatever your first language is. So, of course, it had to be translated from its original language into whatever language we read it in today. And as you can imagine, there's not always a like-for-like word substitution. So when people translate the Bible into something we can read and understand, they have to take, not liberties per se, but try to make the closest match for what the original authors wrote in the Bible to something that we understand today. And the word redeem or redemption is no different. You see, both of these translations, so there are two Hebrew words for redemption, and both of them are important to understand how God is redeemer. The first one is what God does, and the second one is how we can participate in redemption. Now, the first Hebrew word, we're going to do some Hebrew today, by the way. You're going to be Bible scholars by the end of this message, I promise you, okay? The first one carries a more straightforward meaning relative to our English understanding of what the word redeem means. It's the Hebrew word pada, which means to ransom, release, rescue, or deliver. This is what God does for his people and his creation. You see, in context of the Bible, this is the things that God does to bring people or a situation from something that is undesirable to something that is more desirable. So think about some of the ways that we would use the word redemption in our modern language. You see, 
you might drink enough Starbucks where you can earn a free Starbucks and redeem that for a Starbucks, right? When you purchase tickets to a concert or a show, you redeem that ticket for entry to get in to the event. If you're someone who travels, you can redeem all of your hotel stays for a free night at a hotel. And for the soccer players in the room, when you earn a free kick or a penalty kick, you redeem that for a possible goal. You see, this is what God does for people. And it's important to note that we are whoever receives the redemption in this way. Something is cost in this transaction. You see, redemption doesn't happen. It's somebody sacrificing or earning something to receive a more desirable state. There is no such thing as free redemption. Now, there are many, many examples of this kind of redemption in the Bible, and I'm going to give you a list of those now. Don't try to take notes. I'm going to go fast. But I want to prove to you that God is in the business of redemption. A redemption that we learn about in the Bible is the Exodus. God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and God redeemed them and brought them back to Jerusalem, to the Promised Land eventually. The Babylonian exile. Jerusalem falls, God's people go to Babylon, and God eventually brings them back to their home to rebuild the temple. He redeems his people. Abraham has an amazing story of redemption. God actually does. The human part of promise walks through an animal. He also gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, at a very old age and would call Abraham the father of all nations. Abraham has redemption all over his story. Joseph, as a young man, was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he lived a very difficult life. Eventually, though, he would rise to power in Egypt and would be reconciled with his family. God redeemed Joseph's story. The Apostle Paul persecuted Christians for most of his adult life, eventually encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he would become one of the most influential Christians of all time and would actually write most of the New Testament. Paul was redeemed. The prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, given half of his inheritance or his inheritance early, goes and lives a life, squanders his inheritance, ends up sitting and eating with the pigs, comes home to his father, and is redeemed and reconciled with his father. The Apostle Peter denies Jesus three times, and eventually Jesus would redeem him by asking Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter would be called in the Bible the rock on which Jesus was, would build his church. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, we Zacchaeus, if you know that song, went up in a tree to see Jesus. See, he had done a lot of wrong in his life, stolen from people. Jesus saw him, invited himself over to Zacchaeus' home, and would be redeemed by Jesus, giving all that he had stolen back to people. Mary Magdalene, delivered from seven demons, eventually becoming Jesus, one of his closest followers and friends, and would be the first person that would see him after he was raised from the dead. There are so many more, but I wanted to show you this morning that the story of the Bible is a story of redemption. Now, the second Hebrew word that we use to translate from redemption is the Hebrew word ga'al, which means to redeem or rescue a person from a difficult situation, but this is typically within the framework of a familial or a legal obligation. This is also known as the kinsman redeemer. And the closest thing we have in our modern Western culture to kinsman redeemer is the idea of next of kin. 
You see, in your family, either because you designate it or because it's designated for you, excuse me, there is a person or persons that take care of your estate, your children, your family, your money, your debt, etc., if something were to happen to you. When our daughter Clara was born, Leah and I had to sit down and have a conversation about who would take care of her and what would happen to our family and our estate if something were to happen to us. And I don't know how you feel about something like this, but it feels like when you're sitting down and writing this on a piece of paper, it feels awful lot like a formality. But imagine the responsibility and the sacrifice that the people that are named in these documents would have to have if something were to happen to us. This next of kin, this kinsman relationship in our family is actually incredibly critical. And this is where the greatest example in the Bible of kinsman redeemer, of kinsman redemption in a family comes into our story. Today, we're going to spend some time in the book of Ruth. If you want to follow along with this, uh, it's about one-fourth or one-eighth into the Bible. I'm going to give you an overview of the story and tell you why it's important to the story of the Bible overall. But if you want to read it this week, I would encourage you to do that. It's four chapters. It'll take you probably seven minutes to read the entire book of Ruth. So I would encourage you, that's your homework this week, is to read the book of Ruth. Here's a quick overview of the story of Ruth. It starts out with a Jewish couple, Naomi and Elimelech. They lived in Bethlehem. They had two sons. It's important to note at the time of the book of Ruth, God's people, the nation of Israel, was in bad, bad shape. They had rejected the kings, they were living under judges, and a famine comes into the story. So Elimelech decides to move his family, his wife and his two sons, to a neighboring nation called Moab. Now as soon as they get there, the story says that Elimelech dies. So the family in a neighboring nation who is generally at war with Israel. Now it says that the two sons both marry Moabite women. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. This was actually illegal. It was illegal for Jewish men to marry Moabite women. And then the story says, this all happens in the first five verses of Ruth, it says the two sons die. And so here's Naomi living with her two daughters-in-law in a foreign country alone. Now, she cannot care for these two women. She has no resources. She's not with her people And so she does the thing where she decides to go back to to Bethlehem, to her home country, and urges these two women to stay here, stay with their family. She can't care for them. She has no resources and not even any food. But then something incredible happens in this story. Though they would have had far more security, family, and a future if they were to stay in Moab, Ruth says something incredible to Naomi. She says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. There's a lot happening here that's important to the story of the Bible, but Ruth is being incredibly loyal to Naomi. She has no obligation to stay with her. And she's also choosing, now that she's not a part of this family legal arrangement, she's choosing not to worship the Moabite pagan gods, but she's choosing to worship the God of the Bible. 
All this under the umbrella of the intense rivalry and hate between the Moabites and the Israelites. So Naomi and Ruth go back. They go back to the nation of Israel and are welcomed back by Elimelech's family. Here we meet what the Bible calls a wealthy and influential man named Boaz. One day, Ruth goes out into Boaz's field because now they have no food. She needs to collect something for them to eat. And so Ruth goes along and is trying to collect anything she can get from the field. And she's working really hard under the hot sun. And Boaz, this wealthy man who is a part of Elimelech's family, takes notice to Ruth and asks everyone else, who is this woman that's picking up the scraps in the field? And everyone tells him, that's Ruth. That's the woman, the daughter-in-law of Naomi that chose to stay with her. You see, this makes Boaz quite pleased. And he goes to Ruth and says, whatever you need, whatever you need taken care of, you are safe in my field and I will help to feed you. So she, Ruth, falls at his feet and asks, why would you be so kind to me? And he says, when you didn't have to, you were kind to my family. You moved in love towards my family and was loyal to Naomi. And I wish and I pray that the Lord will bless you and reward you for your kindness. Now here, I want to introduce something really important about God that we learn in the Bible. Did you know that God actually tells us? He gives instructions as to what he is like. So if you wonder why God does what he does, he actually tells us that. And he does that in the book of Exodus before he gives the old contract to Moses. Exodus 34 says, And he passed in front of Moses, that's God, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You see, this story, the story that we're learning over these five weeks about the five characteristics of God, this is what he does. This is what we learn what he does. But here, God tells us who he is what his nature is and why the way he acts the way he does. And what, what God is describing here is something, this is the third Hebrew word, I know you're waiting for, the third Hebrew word is God's hesed. This is a really complicated word that doesn't have a single translation into English, but it's used time and time again in the Old Testament to describe God. God's hesed is translated to the following Words, love, loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. This is God's nature. This is why God does what God does. So back to the story of Ruth. So Boaz is recognizing that Ruth acted with Hesed, with God's nature and loving kindness and loyalty towards Naomi. So he is returning the favor and acting in God's Hesed towards her. You see, when we move towards people with this kind of love and loyalty, God often rewards us and blesses us. You see, said is not something that you can just choose to do. It's something that is like the proof is in the pudding. The parents in the room know that you can tell your kids time and time again that you love them. But unless you show them, the words have no value. You see, hesed is a character trait. 
It's a motivation. It's why we do the things we do. And we learned last week with Rini's story, and we'll learn in a bit from mine, that when you act in this way, when you move towards people, that it has a generational impact on your family. It's contagious across relationships in time. So Ruth comes back later that day, tells Naomi about what Boaz did for her. And Naomi tells, Bo, or tells Ruth that Boaz is something that is known as a family redeemer. You see, this relationship of kinsman redeemer or family redeemer is super important to understand the culture in which the people lived in the Old Testament. So I don't know what your family is like. My, my family of origin isn't super close-knit. But even if you're somebody who has a super close-knit family, the family unit in ancient Israel was far, far closer and more closely knit than the closest family that we would ever meet today. You see, the men in the families held an incredible obligation to their greater family. They would do this to repay debts, to avenge wrongs, and to continue the family uh, line, no matter what happens. In most cases, when a husband dies, the brother would marry the widowed woman. They did everything in this way to make sure that their family unit and line continued. But if you remember, there are no brothers left in this story. And so Ruth and Naomi are reliant on this greater, broader family of Elimelech to which they returned. And Boaz's kindness towards Ruth is really important because he wasn't the person that was obligated to do that for her. But we'll come back to that in a second. So as Ruth and Boaz develop this deeper relationship, she capitalizes on a moment to move that relationship more forward. There's a scandalous part of this story that without the understanding of what's happening, it seems like she's doing something maybe inappropriate. But what happens is he's laying there one night, she comes and lays at his feet. Now this indicated two things that are important. Number one, it's an incredible sacrifice and submission. She is saying, I am completely reliant and trustworthy on to you. And secondly, in the Jewish culture, the women actually often initiated a marriage proposal. They would do that by going to the man and saying, I am I'm showing you with my actions that I would like to get married to you. So Ruth does both of those things to Boaz. He wakes up in the middle of the night and says, who is laying at my feet? And she says, it's Ruth. And he says, Ruth, you are an amazing, virtuous woman. You did hard things and you committed to my family when you didn't have to. And so there is a person that will have the, the right in this relationship of Redeemer to marry you. But if he won't do it, then I certainly will. Stay here and I will come back to you. So Boaz wakes up in the morning excited by this new possibility, finds the other man and calls over 10 witnesses. He says, hey, so Naomi and Ruth are selling their family land. Are you interested? And the man says, absolutely. I want to grow my wealth and have more land. And he says, great. Well, if you buy that land, you have to marry Ruth. And the guy says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's more than I bargained for here. You see, if they were to have children, this other man and Ruth, they would be part of 
uh, Malon, which is Ruth's dead husband's line. So the legacy of this man would be broken if he would choose to marry Ruth. He says, if that's the case, I'm not interested. You can marry her. You see, when someone gave up a right in the relationship like this, they would do something interesting. They would take off their sandal and they would hand it to the other person. So the other man who isn't named in the Bible takes off his sandal, gives it to Boaz. And something beautiful happens. Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a son. So Naomi, the woman widowed who lost her sons, now has a son. The line is restored back in her family. Ruth and Boaz's son, his name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. And Jesus, we know, was in David's line. This woman, a foreign woman, pagan worshiping, moves in kindness in relationship towards a family and the generational ripple that is necessary for the Bible to even work is restored. You see, this story is an example of how God blesses our said. When we move towards people in love, God does what only he can do. He furthers his plan and his purposes. You see, we, we have the opportunity to move at any time and in any circumstances into brokenness or into hard places in love. And God will bless that with his nature. This is the heart of redemption in the story of the Bible. And all of this points to Jesus. It's probably interesting to you, maybe it's not, that I could be almost all the way through a message on talking about God as a redeemer without talking about Jesus. But this story, this story is so rich. This story is so important to understand because so much of it happens below the surface. When you read and when you dig into this story, you will find out things that make all of this story come together in beautiful ways. I listed off a lot of the stories of redemption in the Bible earlier. You see, in the Old Testament, God redeems his people, and he redeems people time and time again. But each time they are picked up, they are redeemed by God's outstretched arm, they fall back down. You see, God's people, just like we are today, needed an ultimate redemption. And this redemption came from the price that was paid on the cross. You see, the old covenant, this old contract, was too much for people to bear. And ultimately, it wasn't meant to stay that way. You see, the Old Testament points towards Jesus. You can't, and even if you could, read the Old Testament without looking at it through the lens of Jesus. And so, the crux of redemption in the biblical story is centered around the sacrifice in God, in Jesus, on the cross. This ultimate price was paid for us in blood so that we can receive God's redemption for us. But this redemption 
This isn't like a coupon that expires. This redemption was paid for us, for all of us, once and for all. This one doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't expire if we don't redeem it fast enough. And it's not too good to be true if we look at the fine print. The Apostle Paul, who we talked about earlier, wrote in Ephesians 1, that even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. This redemption, this redemption is a gift. And what's beautiful about it is all we have to do to receive this gift is to believe in the person that paid for it. And even cooler than that, if that's not enough, our eternity secure is not all that we receive when we receive this redemption. You see, God brings us into his family, and he does that because his has said, and the way that he loves us and moved towards us. It's not some transaction that we redeem and things are good forever. I mean, they're good forever. But we participate in what's happening now. You see, God has a redemptive mission for people. For you. For your story. All of this, this redemption, isn't done happening. It's not something we read about in the Bible and move on from. It's happening. It's here. And it's happening now. It's happening in and through God's people now. Earlier in the message, I showed you the picture of Leah and I on the screens, and I showed you a picture of our older, our, our girls, older girls and Clara. And I told you that I've been a pastor in ministry for the last eight years. But it wasn't always this way, my life. You see, before that time, about eight years ago, when I answered the call to ministry, my life was an absolute wreck. Now, it wasn't all bad. I want to make sure to say this before I say this, that you don't have to be at the absolute bottom. You don't have to have a life that's entire, entirely screwed up to receive God's redemption. You see, God redeems all of the things in our life. He redeems the relationships that are broken in our life. The friends that we are broken had a fight from a long time ago and haven't talked to in 10 years. He redeems the relationship with our kids and our family that might be struggling. He redeems the addiction and the strongholds that we are kept in bondage to. He redeems and heals our body in sickness and in brokenness. This is what God does. This is in his nature. God can and will redeem all of those things 
too. But for that part of my life, most of it was a wreck. Back to that story. The person that was living that life would be absolutely shocked. I'd like to see this, if he could somehow see this. To see this version of him, 10 years later, standing on a stage at a church, preaching about Jesus and his redemption. You see, that version of me 10 years ago was estranged from my ex-wife, pursuing an affair with a woman who was married to somebody else. He was, in all of this, trying to make a life work that was so filled with brokenness that it kept him from driving his car most days all the way to work without pulling it over, overcome by despair and weeping. And when he wasn't trying to make that life work, you'd probably find him three or more days a week at a bar at a small town in northern Wisconsin, closing it down with some friends. And then... I met Jesus. And I recognized that my life and my eternity was covered by the redemption that Christ paid for on the cross. You see, I'm on this career path now and this calling in my life. You see, only God could write this story. Only God could make this possible. And the gift of my family is really the icing on the cake. Now, God didn't reward me because I believed in him hard enough or enough or the right way with a reward in my family. That's not what happened. It's not like if you believe hard enough that God will give you what you want. But if we've learned anything today, I think it's that God is in the business of redemption, of redeeming his people. You see, God wants to bring more and more people into his family, more and more people into this redemption story. And he does that in and through our chesed, our loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness, and loyalty towards one another. So in my story, when Leah and I move towards God in his redemption, and we move towards each other in said, God did what only God can do. Like God did for the nation of Israel time and time again. Like he did for Peter, Paul, and the prodigal son. And like he did for Naomi and for Ruth. You see, to participate in God's redemption leads to the fulfillment of his plan and his purposes. Do you remember the prophetic vision of this shining city from Revelation that I talked about earlier? I want to tell you something really cool about the promise of redemption in this story. So, to start at the beginning of the Bible, if you know all this, bear with me. If not, this is important. So the beginning of the Bible is God creating everything from nothing. He created the earth and the heavens and the skies and the universe and the seas and the light and the darkness and all of it. And then he created the best part, Adam and Eve. 
his people. And he gave them dominion over this beautiful garden of Eden. He said, you can walk with me and do anything you'd like. I want to be with you and walk this way forever. But the only thing you cannot do is to eat the fruit from that one tree. You know what happens, right? They ate the fruit from the tree. So sin entered the story, entered the story of humanity. So God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And it says in the book of Genesis that he placed a mighty cherubim, which sounds sweet but probably wasn't, in front of the gate to the Garden of Eden. And then it says he placed some sort of flaming swords that I imagine were doing this on the path to the tree. So people were sent, thrown out of God's presence in the garden of paradise to toil away on the earth forever, having to be redeemed and picked up time and time again. So it says that humans were barred from the Garden of Eden. Well, it says in Revelation 21 that the gates to this city that will live in forever will never be closed. Humanity not allowed to eat from the tree? Well, it says in Revelation 22 that a river will flow from God's throne room and that fruit will be available all year long to feed the nations and to heal all the people. Humans on our own, living without God, sent to toil and work the land? Revelation 21 says God's home is among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people forever. He will make everything new. There will be no more death, no more sin, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. Forever, all things are made new. You see, God's redemption in the end is to make everything right that sin made wrong. He, God, is going to redeem everything. You see, God created us to live with him. This is the story of the Bible. And that is where we are going to spend our eternity. And it's not something that's far off into the future. It's something that we can trust that's proven to be true time and time again because of the story that this book tells. This book, the Bible, tells us that God has redeemed, that God will redeem, and that God is redeeming. And this redemption is available to us today. Like, right now. So where do you need God's redemption in your story? What's broken in your life? What friend haven't you talked to for 10 years? Where are you struggling in your family or with your kids? What thing has a stronghold over your life? What thing is keeping you in bondage and you know that you're supposed to be free from it, but you just can't seem to get there? What's hurting in your body? What illness is a part of your family's story? You see, God wants to heal that too. God wants to redeem those things too. So as we close today, we're going to do something that's maybe a little bit weird for you. But as we always say, this is a safe place. 
And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and to picture in your mind's eye those things, the things that are broken in your life, the relationships that need God's redemption, the things that you know are not the way they are supposed to be. And with your eyes closed, in a safe place, just you and God, in the sound of my voice, I'd like to pray that God would redeem those things in your life. So this is an invitation. You don't have to do this. But I would invite you to allow us and to allow me to pray God's redemption over your story too. And so if you're willing, would you close your eyes? So if it hasn't already happened for you, just invite God to show you a picture. You can just think that. Um, And he's generous and he'll show you. And as you're holding that thing in your mind's eye right now, the, the person, maybe the face, maybe the memory, maybe the part of your body or the illness or the thing that you can't seem to get away from that's got you ensnarled, you have that there now and I would just love to pray for you. Jesus, as we are your people that you love so much that you went to the cross for and paid the price in blood for our eternity and our redemption, we're sitting here in your presence right now and these people, and you know what's in their mind, but it's important that we understand that we can offer it to you anyway. And so, Lord, I pray that everything that is being imagined in this room right now, that you would move into. I pray, Jesus, that as my beloved brothers and sisters in you are imagining something hard, broken, estranged, or far from freedom, that you would move into that space in the way that only you can do, because it's in your nature, because it's in your hesed. God, thank you for picking us up time and time again. God, thank you for going to the cross and paying for our freedom and our redemption with your blood. And so now in this moment, I pray, come Holy Spirit and minister to these people. I pray that you would show them, if necessary, how and where they need to move towards other people, towards a relationship, towards something that's broken. I pray you'd give them that motivation and that clarity. And then I pray, Jesus, that you would do what only you can do and that you would redeem these stories in this room. Give give us security, Lord, how you are healing, where you are healing, and where you will redeem. And give us the understanding that in the end, no matter the timing, that in the end, it will be all made new. All sin, all tears, all brokenness, and death will depart. And that everything that we're imagining in our mind would be restored to your full glory the way that you created it in the beginning. So thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for what you've done and thank you for what you are doing right now. I pray redemption into these stories just as you've given to mine. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. You are worthy of our praise. 
And we pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.